You can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. We'll be in verses 35 through 48 this morning. Germany's Cologne Cathedral is one of the most magnificent structures in all of Europe. It's twin spires, if you've ever seen pictures of it or or been there. They reach over 500 feet into the sky. Uh, Today, I I read recently, it attracts 20,000 visitors per day. What's interesting about this structure, the first sort of foundation stone was laid in 1248, and it wasn't completed until 1888. Now, there was a few hundred years in there where they stopped to sort of fight some wars and things, but still over 600 years. And what struck me as I was reading about this, this structure is that the person who laid the first cornerstone knew that he would never live long enough to worship inside of this building, but he thought it was still worth it to start building. And that's hard for us to even comprehend to, to, to start a building, although I've heard 800 years to get a house built in the Black Hills may be about right. But this man had to operate with a view towards the future, with an eye towards what, what could be. And it's hard for us in this fast-paced, immediate gratification world to even comprehend starting something that you would never see accomplished. Because we're discipled by our world to live almost exclusively for the present, for the immediate, the earthly, the physical, that which is right now. The thought of the future, if we're not careful, rarely goes beyond considering what my weekend might look like. And that's why we need the words of Christ to us this morning. That's why we need the reminder from Jesus. Challenged to live, not with 600 years in view, but but challenged to live with the end in view. Specifically, we're called this morning to be ready for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, where He will reward the righteous and he will punish the wicked. And so our, our prayer this morning is that God would redirect our hearts, our affections away from this world and towards our glorious Savior who is indeed coming again. So as we think about our text, it, it, you may have even picked up on these as rusty red. There's really two divisions in the text this morning. The first section is 12:35 through 40 where the disciples are commanded to be ready, for they don't know the day or the hour in which Christ will return. And the second section is there in verses 41 through 48 that contrasts the faithful with the unfaithful and warns of impending judgment for those who remain in their state of unfaithfulness, fulfilling their own desires as opposed to being ready, faithfully serving the household of God. So let's look at that first point there. Be ready because you don't know the time of Christ's return. Look there in verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep the lamps burning. And in verse 36, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to to him at once when he comes and knocks. If you remember... We just finished up, it took us a few weeks, but we, we just finished up a decently large chunk of Scripture that began back in chapter 12, verse 13, with this parable of the rich fool. 
Remember, he had, a, he had an especially blessed year of crops, and the only thing he could think to do was build larger barns. He, he wasn't concerned about the glory of God. He wasn't concerned about his neighbor. And therefore, he, he was not rich toward God, that he served himself and not others. He should have trusted God's provision that I don't have to hoard everything. God will provide for me next year. And that would have freed him then to be generous with what God had blessed him with. He should have set his sights on the kingdom of God rather than on his own little kingdom of self. But instead, the the text says his treasure was on earth. And so therefore was the affections of his heart. And for this man, the rich fool, death came at an unexpected hour. He thought he'd reached retirement. I can eat, drink, and be merry. I can, I can be done with the labor. I don't have to plan for the future. I don't think about anything coming down the pike. And the text said, you fool, your soul is required of you tonight. Death came at an unexpected hour. In our text this morning, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will come at an unexpected hour hour. And so as we look forward to eternity, even in the way we handle our possessions, we saw that with the rich fool, we're also called this morning to look forward to the return of Christ and to live differently as a result. And so Jesus begins in verse 35 with a couple of illustrations that are essentially making the same point, be ready. The ESV says, stay dressed which I think does capture well the fact that this is something that we are meant to continually be doing, stay dressed for action. We should always be ready, be mindful of Christ coming again. You know, in Israel, men would wear these long robes, you know, and they could be cumbersome to work or to run or to fight in. And so literally the the Greek says, gird up your loins, which if you grew up with the old King James, you're familiar with that sort of language, and it, it's, it's the literal translation. So if a person were to run or to walk, or maybe, maybe they could walk with their robe, to run, to fight, to work, they would pull up their robe and they would sort of tuck it in so that they could have some more freedom to move around. They'd be dressed for action, ready at a moment's notice to fight or work. And so stay dressed for action. In other words, be ready. Another Illustration makes the same point. Keep your lamps burning. The idea is a constant vigilance, even in the dark of night, a person is ready. They're vigilant. They're on watch. So we want to be, in verse 36, like a servant in the house who is ready to open the door. We're we're ready. We're dressed for action. Lamps are burning. We want to be like a servant in the house who is ready to open the door for our master when he returns. That's really a third image that Jesus gives us there of readiness in verse 36. So this man is away, this master, he's away at a a wedding feast. Now I'm generally of the opinion that wedding receptions tend to go on way too long, that the couple should leave way sooner. That's just me, but I would be cast out of Israel because these wedding feasts could last for days or weeks, or at least a week. 
And so you didn't know when the master could return. It could be in three days. It could be in five days. It could last up to a week. But in Jesus' example, the servant is found waiting, ready for the return of his master. Um, Maybe a more contemporary illustration would be like a, a babysitter. You know, as the night drags on and on, I, I've never been a babysitter before. I'm, I'm told it doesn't count if it's your own kids. But as the night drags on and on, I, I'm assuming it'd be tempting to sort of grow lax and lax with the rules, maybe doze off a little bit, and here comes mom and dad back to their own house, and the house is a disaster, it's a wreck, the kids are going crazy, and the babysitter has been found sleeping. Well, it's, it's infinitely worse, eternally worse, is growing lax in waiting for the return of Jesus. It may feel like a delay to us, right? As, as you read the, the Bible, it, it seems that the authors of Scripture were, were anticipating this, that even in their lifetime. Yet also, there's this indication that there may be a delay, like this wedding feast. There may be a delay between the first and second coming of Christ. To us, it feels like that. But God is perfectly working out His time frame according to His good will. So we hold these these two truths then simultaneously. We're not surprised that God has been patient with people in allowing more and more to hear the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and opening more and more eyes to have faith in this gospel. We're not surprised at the patience and the long-suffering of God in allowing more people to hear and receive Christ. But at the same time, we recognize that we must be ready for this hour that could come at any time where God gathers His people and punishes the wicked. So we live and work and worship and serve together, awaiting the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we want to be with Him. And so we long for that day. We look toward that day. We trust, like like verse 37 says, we trust that there will be great blessing and reward for those who have been found Faithful, that blessing, that reward is found in the presence of Christ. Look in verses 37 and 38. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. It's those faithful servants, the ones that are awaiting this return of Christ, that are the recipients of God's grace. They receive the reward and blessing that Christ brings with them at His return. And like so many of Jesus' image, there's a, there's a kicker, there's a twist in there that would just blow the mind of the audience that when the Master returns to this house and He finds that if servant, His servants have been found faithful, they were awake, they were ready, they were waiting for him. What does the master do? He turns and he serves the servants. Now, the, the, the first part of the story would make total sense to anybody hearing this. You know, you, you can imagine a, a socialite in the city that has enough money to have a nice home that needs servants. And, and so 
He can understand the master being away at a feast. He can understand putting a a servant in charge of the household while he is gone. He can smile as he thinks about, yeah, I think my servant would do well when I'm gone. But the master returning and then turning into a servant and serving the servants would have blown his mind. He would have said, there's no, absolutely no way. That's backwards. That's upside down. But that's exactly what makes Christ such a magnificent Savior. He's already made himself a servant. He's already humbled himself and leaving heaven's glory, not considering that something to be grasped or held onto so tightly that he's unwilling to humble himself and come to this earth and take on the form of a servant, even to the point of death, death on the cross. He served his disciples while he was here and washing their feet at the end, at the Last Supper, saying, I'm one who has come to serve. And of course, he gave his life a ransom for many, as one who came not to be served, but to, but to serve and to give his life as the ransom payment for sin. The master has already served, not only, uh, and again, the gospel is so glorious, it's not only that he served his servants, it's that he served his enemies, those who had set themselves up against him by way of our very sin. We had made ourselves the enemy of God, and yet Christ humbled himself to come be the ransom payment for us. And for those who have turned to him and trusted in Christ, their sins are forgiven, they're adopted into God's family, and they seek to serve and to know and to love him and his church all the days of their life or until the return of Christ. And when he returns, he brings this blessing, this reward with them as we live underneath His rule. Now this isn't, we can't read too much into Jesus' pictures. This isn't that Jesus becomes our personal butler where we get to snap our fingers for all eternity. We, We wouldn't think about treating Christ that way, but it is that He is gracious and kind and rewards those who don't deserve it. On the basis, not of our own work, but on the basis of Christ's work, for us. So be so be ready. Be ready, be vigilant, be alert, verse 39, because you can't plot out this return on a timeline. Instead in verse 39, Jesus' return is like a thief in the night. You know, the thief doesn't announce his schedule. He doesn't text you and say, "Hope your doors are unlocked. Be by in 15." So what's the only protection against a thief? The only protection is constant vigilance, constant alertness. Or as Jesus says in verse 40, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect, like a thief in the night. So there are a couple ways that I believe we can get sideways when we think about the return of Christ. And one of the ways is to to become so ingrained in trying to tie current events to when we understand Christ will come back. You know, oh, Russia's doing this and China's doing this, and then we try to go, you know, we don't want to fall into, into that trap. I can appreciate the excitement of those who are longing for the return of Christ, but 
As one seminary professor told me, don't preach from the newspaper. Okay, so we don't want to do we don't want to do that. And one of the one of the dangers of this, I think, is we take our eyes off of Christ and we begin to place them on the events of this world. And so we're less Christ-centered and we're more involved in geopolitical movements and things of those sorts. And then if we're not careful, we become, we come, become more excited about getting out of this world and actually being with Christ in His presence. So we look forward to the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ because we are with Him. We'll look at 1 Thessalonians 5 in a few minutes. We are with Him. Comfort one another with these words. Another error, though, is to sort of swing back to the other side, right? Some people have gone too far. So, so what's my tendency anyways? Maybe not yours. Mine is to come all the way back over here and say, well, whatever. It's going to happen. Well, we don't want to neglect this doctrine either. We don't want to be indifferent to the return of Christ. You know, most of us would never say, ah, I don't really care that much about the return of Christ. We wouldn't let those words come out of our mouth, but our lives may betray that about us. We must examine our hearts, and we might notice a tendency to live for the immediate, to live for the present, to live for this world, instead of living with an eye towards Christ's return, living in light of the end. So this text, I think, exists not to sort of satisfy our curiosities, but it exists to prepare us to serve God faithfully today as we long for that day. So we don't want to become lackadaisical. We want to keep looking for that great appearing. We live in light of that day. We serve Christ as those who understand that He's returning And He will judge the righteous and the wicked. We must all stand before Him at the judgment seat, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. And the truth is, we don't know the day or the hour. But secondly, here we'll see in verses 41 through 48, we're sort of told, I think, through another illustration, what it might look like to be faithful today. So we don't get to say, okay, be alert. Well, this is what I think that means. The text will tell us. And the New Testament tells us. So secondly is this, be found faithful by serving others in God's household. Look there in verse 41. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the faithful. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act accordingly to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. 
Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So Jesus has been addressing the disciples from really the beginning of chapter 12. Remember in chapter 12, verse 1, the crowds were so large that the SV says they're trampling one another. They're they're at least stepping over each other to get to Jesus. This crowd is getting large, and and surprisingly, Jesus, Jesus doesn't address the crowd right away. He turns and he begins to address his disciples. And in verse 22, it affirms to us again that Jesus is addressing his disciples. So Peter's question is, is a natural question. Lord, who, who should this apply to? Peter's kind of the unelected spokesman of the group, and he wants to know, who is this about? Does this relate only to the 12? Does this relate to, you know, kind of the broader definition of a disciple? Anyone who's professing Christ? Or does this apply to the crowd that's gathered here as well? And what Jesus does, you know, he often answers a question with a question, or he often answers with a story, and this time he does both. He says, who then is the faithful and wise manager? So Jesus doesn't directly address the question that Peter asks. Instead, he turns to another illustration. Who is this wise and faithful manager? You know, those who, if we're going to tie in with point one, those who receive the blessings of verse 37 are like faithful and wise managers over the household of God. Now, this this manager, this steward, he would have been one of the servants in the house who would be left in charge of the estate while the master was away. And notice in the text, it becomes important in a minute when we look at the unfaithful guy, that this guy was charged with the welfare of the other servants. You need to to serve the others, make sure they have their food at their appointed time. That's there at the end of verse 37. It was his job to make sure that the other servants would be cared for. And he, he, this particular wise and faithful servant did so. He made sure that the estate was taken care of and, and that um, you know, these, these servants were given their food at the proper time. Why? Knowing that his master could return at any hour. And so this wise and faithful manager cares for those who are under his authority. But compare then the unfaithful manager in verse 45. But if, those are two huge words when you read in your Bible. Notice, but if. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. So the unwise is tasked with the same responsibilities, but he begins to to spend his own energy on serving himself. He begins to speak to himself. Did you notice that in the text? He speaks to himself, and the counsel is not good counsel. Remember, the, the rich fool also spoke to himself, right? And he also gave himself bad counsel. He said, soul, remember, I love the, the, the text. His soul said to his soul, soul, 
eat, drink, and be merry. Because you have so much going on right now. You have so much going for you. Why don't you just indulge yourself? Why don't you just serve yourself? And now, again, we find a man who is speaking to himself, and he's speaking bad counsel. What's the bad counsel here? Well, the master's away. It's been a while. I'm sure I'll see him coming down the road, and I can sort of get things back in order really fast. You know, there is application here, I think, for us that part of walking faithfully today looks like hiding God's Word in our hearts so that the counsel that we speak to ourselves is true and accurate because it's God's Word. Give yourself godly counsel. And you can't do that apart from knowing the Word of God. When you hide the Word in your heart and you memorize Scripture and you're in the Bible regularly, thoughts that come into your mind like the, like the rich fuel, fool, oh, you know what? Eat, drink, be merry, don't worry about anybody else. Those will be like alarm bells going off. There's something wrong because I've hidden God's Word in my heart and I know that this contradicts God's Word. So saturate your mind with God's Word. Be renewed in your thinking so that your thoughts align with God's thoughts that are given to us specifically in the Bible. But notice one of the main differences between the faithful manager and the unfaithful manager is that the faithful provided for his servants. That the faithful provided for those underneath his authority. The unfaithful does what? He beats the other servants, he eats all the food, he gets drunk off the wine, he indulges his own pleasures at the expense of those whom he was supposed to care for. He serves himself, even though he knows that that's going to harm those around him. All the while, he's directly rebelling against the specific instruction of his master, which was to care for the estate and feed the servants when they need to be fed. So he plunges himself into evil with no concern whatsoever for what the master would desire. And it's clear at this point, that what's the problem with the unfaithful manager? He doesn't love God, and he doesn't love his neighbor. He doesn't love God, he indulges his own sinful pleasures, and he doesn't love his neighbor, he uses them for his own gain and Benefit. He uses people to fulfill the lusts of the flesh instead of self-sacrificially giving himself to others so that he might love and serve them well. And so the master, when he returns, he's looking for, for one thing. Have you been faithful over the household? The faithful manager has, okay, maybe this, this is a throwaway line. The unfaithful has not, of course, it's the language, though, of managers and household and sort of a manager having authority over servants in the household, I think should lead us to consider what this means for those who have spiritual leadership in the church, right? A manager over God's household ought to lead well. You know, when we were walking through Malachi, it's been probably a couple years at this point, but we saw that in Israel, the very ones who were charged with shepherding, leading, teaching, they were the ones who were in, in, in most direct rebellion to God. Those who had been given to spiritual service were the ones most guilty of despising God and His Word. 
And this was the case of, of the religious leaders, I think, in the day of the time of Christ, right? Most of them at this point are already committed to putting Christ to death. They, too, were guilty of harming others by, by laying up heavy burdens on their shoulders through legalistic, self-righteous commands. And so God's people were then hurt and harmed by, by those who were meant to lead them well and to teach them the Scriptures. Those who ought to have shepherded them and loved them and cared for them instead indulged their own selfish desires and served themselves. So I think there is application here for those who have been given leadership, particularly spiritual leadership in God's church, God's household. Those who are tasked with shepherding, including the elders of our church and the elder of, of any biblical church, they should use their gifts to serve and to love and to give away of themselves, not for the betterment of themselves. So Jesus Christ is the one that has purchased His church. It is, it is His you know, I may say something like my church, but I don't mean it belongs to me. I, I would use it the same way you would say Southern Hills is my church. Those are my people. Yeah, we are a family together. But, but if I ever say my church, I, I, I'm, by God's grace, I'm not implying that anyone or, or any building or anything else belongs to me. Myself and the other elders of this church, we're just, we're just stewards. We're just stewards of what Christ has purchased with his own blood. And so you can pray for us as elders, that we'd remain faithful, that we'd be found faithful on that day when Christ has turned, that we, we would have been found serving others, giving away, teaching God's word faithfully, leading others to know and glorify God, not for ourselves. If you look at the qualifications for an elder, he can't do the things that this guy does, can't be drunkard, can't be quarrelsome, can't be violent. Pray for us that we would remain faithful to Him. But I don't think that's the only application for us, for us this morning. I'm not sure that exclusively leadership is in mind here. And so the question becomes, you know, we've talked about being ready, be alert, be vigilant, keep your, lamp, keep your lamps burning, stay dressed for action, what does that mean? What does it mean to be faithful? Well, I think in this context, it means serving faithfully as a member of God's house. Serving faithfully as a member of God's family, His household. And so to be found faithful may not be as complicated as we, as we want to make it. Serving faithfully in God's household, the church, by serving God, loving God, and loving others. You know, it's amazing to me how many times in the New Testament, passages that, that speak of the coming of Christ call immediately to do sort of ordinary, regular Christian living. You know, I was reading this, this text this week, and I thought, okay, so... The master comes back, and he becomes the servant of the servants. For what? What did they do? They just stayed awake. They didn't build him a new house. They just stayed awake. Consider passages like the end of 1 Thessalonians 4. You can turn there if you want. You don't 
you don't have to, I'll read it for you. But maybe I'll get there too. Think about this passage. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Wow, what do we do with this? Verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another. What do we do in light of the the coming of Christ? How do I stay ready? How do I stay vigilant? Well, one way to do it is just to encourage one another to look towards that day, especially in light of suffering and hardship and death. We long and we point others towards this great appearing. You know, he he teases this out in chapter 5. You know, he encourages those who, who, who are truly in Christ, right? That, that, that's, that's the kicker. It's this, this passage at the end of 1 Thessalonians 5. It's those who are truly in Christ. Not, not to think of Christ's return as something that's, that's scary or to be dreaded. or No, he says in, in chapter 5, verse 9, For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, now don't think like masters sleeping or awake, think dead or alive here. We, we might live with Him. Therefore, enc- what do we do with that? Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. What is it like to be faithful? It's to be active in the body of Christ, encouraging, loving, serving, giving yourself away. What should we be doing to be found faithful, anticipating the day and bringing others along with us, encouraging one another? Something similar happens in 1 Peter 4. We don't have to to go there, but the end of all things is at hand. Oh, man, what do do I do? Well, Peter says, be self-controlled, sober-minded, love one another, show hospitality to one another, stop grumbling. And then what? Use your gifts to serve the body. If you have gifts like service-type gifts, then serve with the strength that God supplies. If you have gifts of teaching and preaching, speak the oracles of God. Speak His Word, not your own. What do we do in light of the end? We serve the Lord faithfully in His household. You know, we don't often associate Ephesians 4 with with the end times, but, but think about Ephesians 4. Some of you are familiar with that. If you're not, you can read it on your own this afternoon. But we're laboring towards Christ-likeness together as a body. We do this together. We grow up into the image of Christ. And how long do we do that? Well, we do that until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, till we're all completely mature in Christ. When does that happen? Not next week, and not the week after. It's when Christ comes and gathers His people. So one of the things that, as you think about some of these passages, something that pops off the page is that we will be found faithful together, or we will fall alone. 
We will be found faithful together as a household, or we will fall all by ourselves. In other words, we need each other to remind us of the coming of Christ. You cannot do this apart from the church. You cannot live the Christian life apart from the church. It's something we do together. Of course, of course, we're called to love everyone. We're called to serve others, our neighbor, whether they're a believer or unbeliever. But in this particular text, our devotion to the Lord, our faithfulness, our readiness, our alertness is measured by how we love each other and care for each other and encourage each other in the household of faith. The wise and faithful one is blessed in verse 43 with stewardship in the kingdom of God. He will set him over all his possessions. The faithful steward extends his, his stewardship over what God has given us here into the kingdom where we will reign with Christ. But the one who is found unfaithful, he is warned of impending judgments. Jesus makes the same point in verse 40, 46 that he's been making. For the one who gives himself to his own pleasure, those who neglect the will of God, those who show no sign of love for God, love for God's word, love for God's people, they're found surprised at the return of Christ. Jesus will come on a day that is not expected. So for you this morning... If you're outside of Christ, I would implore you, don't assume that you can wait. Don't assume that you can wait. The, rot, the life of the rich fuel, oh, I keep just wanting to say fuel. I guess it's gas prices. The life of the rich fool was required unexpectedly. You fool. Your soul is required of you tonight, and the return of Christ will come unexpectedly. It's dangerous. To say, I'll trust Christ one day. Maybe like Augustine, you want to say, Lord, make me pure, but not yet. Don't do that. Don't say, oh, I'll repent of my sin after I've sort of indulged in a little while. I've, I've experienced the greatness that this world has to offer. And then I will come to Christ. Christ returns, he returns unexpectedly, and he judges righteously. And he deals a mortal blow to the unfaithful servant, and he places them, the him, the text says, with the unrepentance. It's an image of, of the consequences of remaining unfaithful to the Lord instead of turning to him and trusting in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. His complete and utter rejection at the unexpected return of Christ. There's a, he's cut in pieces, the text says, and placed among the unfaithful. In Matthew's gospel, a similar text, he's cast into outer, outer darkness where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's terrifying judgment of God. The first steward, I think there's, there's three different types of stewards here. The first one was defiant. He knew the master's will, and he deliberately disobeyed, and he receives a stricter judgment. If you look, the judgment sort of lessens as, as the text goes on. This one's caught up and put with the unbelievers. A second type in verse 47, he's likewise not, not doing the will of the master. 
He seems more distracted than he was defiant. And he receives a severe beating, the text says. And third in verse 48, this guy didn't know, right? You see that word but again in verse 48, I think. I'm, I'm still in first says 48. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. To the one who, that's what Jesus is getting. The one who was given much, much was required. The one who knew and was defiant, he serves a stricter judgment. Paul speaks similarly in Romans chapter 5 of of Israel. They had the revealed will. They had the written word. They had the law, so they incur a stricter judgment. However, all of them, all of them incur judgment. And they all bear responsibility. Whether it's defiance, whether it's distraction, or whether it's ignorance, all are required to respond properly to what God has revealed. So in light of Christ's coming, defiance or just distraction or even ignorance, all risk eternal tragedy because all are without excuse. God has revealed Himself clearly in this world and through His Word and through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So our only hope, our only hope is found in the work of Christ. He has rescued us from this impending judgment, from the wrath of God by taking on the wrath Himself and by defeating sin and death in His resurrection. And for those who have turned to Christ, the Bible encourages us that He has given us everything we need to walk in faithfulness and obedience. We don't do it perfectly, obviously, But He has given you what it takes to be faithful. And He ensures through the work of His Spirit that those who have the Spirit in them remain faithful till the end. You know, I first learned about the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald the same way everyone else did by hearing Gordon Lightfoot sing about it. The Edmund Fitzgerald, if you don't know the history, was a freighter on the Great Lakes that sank in the mid-1970s. The whole crew perished. I think it was 27 people on board. The ship was, was coming back from, from Minnesota where it picked up a load of iron ore and it was going to transport it across Lake Superior. And as they're heading south, this great storm arises, 25 to 30-foot swells, which in a lake, it's a big deal. But despite the fact that the the ship was taking on water, the ship's captain kept saying, you know, I think we're doing okay. A minute after he said that, a monstrous wave overcomes the ship. The propeller's still spinning. So the propeller drives the ship deeper and deeper into the depths of the water until it crashes on the floor of the lake. According to a ship that was following, the captain said it was just there one second, And it was gone the next. And and the the last communication from the captain were these misguided and tragic words. We are holding our own. We are holding our own. It's foolish. It's foolish to say, I'm holding my own. When I'm walking in direct defiance, or I'm distracted by the cares of this world, or ignorant of God's saving grace in Christ. 
Don't assume you're holding your own if you're outside of him. Instead, announce your grave position to him. Admit it, that you stand in danger of God's impending judgment and wrath. And trust then that Jesus Christ has come to pay that penalty for your sin and to rescue from the wrath to come. He did it through his own death through bearing the penalty, becoming the ransom payment by becoming the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. Call upon Him in faith, trusting that He indeed took your punishments. For all who call upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says, shall be saved. By God's grace and His effectual work in you, many of you are here this morning have, have trusted in Christ, The Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to see the glory of the gospel. For you, the return of Christ is something that we can anticipate, we can long for, we can look forward to. It should be a comfort to you. Jesus is the one who has come to serve. He's demonstrated that on the cross for us. And we can trust that when he returns, he gathers his people, and he has rewards for those who are made righteous in Christ. We will be forever with the Lord. So comfort one another with these words. Let's pray. Lord God, we are humbled by the thought of the gospel. We are so undeserving. We weren't weren't your servants. We were your enemies. Yet Christ paid the price for our sins. Lord, may we encourage one another to anticipate that day. May we not be drawn away and discipled by our our world and our culture to live only for the present. Lord, may you open eyes to see the glory of the gospel. May you convict hearts of distraction and ignorance and defiance. And Lord, may you help us at Southern Hills to remain faithful that on that day we may be found faithful together. In Jesus' name, amen.